Okay. So hello and welcome back to the Mikro Pellet Hour. I am very pleased that my guest today is Dr. Gerald Horn. Uh, he's no uh, stranger to WPFW and to the listeners. And I want to get right into it, uh, into the serious issues that uh, we have before us and tap into your, uh, your, you know, your vast expertise on so many different issues. Um, the issue that interests me the most, and, and I was, I, I'm really hoping um, to learn from your, you know, from your perspective, there's a lot of talk about the solidarity between the Palestinian struggle and the black American struggle. And it's something that has a history, which I'm no expert on, but but I'm sure you can you can uh, you can enlighten me and and the and the listeners. Um, but it doesn't seem to me that it has ever really taken off to a point where it's made like a significant difference. So maybe we can start. Do you see similarities, and what are the similarities, if any, between the Black American struggle and the Palestinian struggle for liberation? Well, certainly there are similarities. Um, first of all, we're talking about two oppressed peoples on both sides of the Atlantic. On the other hand, it's been a kind of mixed bag. Just like the US left generally supported the creation of the State of Israel in 1947-1948 and gave short shrift, I'm afraid to say, to Palestinian claims, uh, black Americans were paying attention, speaking mostly of intellectuals like W.E.B. Du Bois, the founder of the NAACP, who later joined the U.S. Communist Party, or Paul Robeson, who ideologically was in the same framework. And they too gave short shrift to the uh, Palestinians as, as well. But that began to change with the Suez Crisis of 1956, the piratical attack by Israel, Britain, and France on Nasser's Egypt. Uh, that Suez attack uh, attracted uh, substantial support to the Arab cause, uh, not only from the left, but also from a rising black nationalist movement uh, as embodied in the organization that came to be known as the Nation of Islam. And then that reached a crescendo in 1967 with the so-called Six-Day War, when you saw not only the recently formed Black Panther Party, but the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee uh, then under the tutelage and leadership of a man of D.C. heritage, speaking of Kwame Ture, once known as Stokely Carmichael, they came out four square in favor of the Palestinian cause. And then with the presidential races of Reverend Jesse Jackson in the 1980s, uh, he got into hot water because of his solidarity with the Palestinians and just before that, his comrade in arms, uh, Andrew Young, uh, then U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, was sacked because of supposed uh, unwarranted contacts with the Palestinian Liberation Organization. So again, it's been a mixed bag. And uh, I, I would say that even with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement and the extension of solidarity from the Palestinian side to the Black American side with regard to police terror. There are contradictions uh, between the two forces that have complicated the ability to forge a more lasting solidarity. Let me let me interrupt you for a second. And so we talk about 
solidarity with the Palestinian struggle or, or supporting the Palestinian struggle pre-67, post-67, and then later on, like you mentioned, Andy Young, who was nominated by, by Jimmy Carter and then and Jesse Jackson. What are we talking about? What what kind of support was it? What were what were these these uh, people and these movements that you described? What were they supporting exactly? Well, if you look at the Suez Crisis, uh, I would argue that the Nation of Islam, in particular, when they launched their, their newspaper, eventually called Muhammad Speaks, that it was circulating in the tens of thousands in the Black American community, and international news was its forte. And so you saw a lot of coverage of the Suez crisis that is then helping to inform an electorate. Keep in mind as well that post-1956, you begin to see the enfranchisement of Black voters who then can influence legislators to the degree that that's possible, given the strength of the Zionist and Israeli lobby. But in any event, uh, a trip of a thousand miles begins with one step, and uh, certainly seeds were planted uh, with regard to uh, the flowering of Black Palestinian solidarity. And then the Black Panther Party, uh, their newspaper eventually had a circulation of about 140,000 from the Atlantic uh, to the Pacific. And once again, these are planting seeds that then sprout when Jesse Jackson takes it on the campaign trail in the race for presidency in the 1980s. And so, uh, I mean, I could go on in this vein, but I should also mention that from the other side, uh, the Black Panthers, uh, as you know, established a diplomatic legation in Algiers. Uh, there was contact with the Palestinian Liberation Organization in Algiers. The White House believed that the PLO was training uh, Black American guerrillas uh, to come back to the United States. That's what the White House believed at that time. Was it true? It was likely true, but the numbers are unclear. Hmm. Well, let me let me push a little bit more on this issue. What I'm trying to get at is this. Even today, when we talk about solidarity with the Palestinian cause, if you ask 10 different people, you're going to get different views on what that actually means. What And granted, particularly over the last few decades, I think what the Palestinian cause precisely is, has been unclear to a lot of people for a, lot, for a variety of reasons. Um, but when you talk about these earlier days, again, pre-1967, and we talk about the Black Panther support and the Nation of Islam support, what precisely did this, what was the purpose of the struggle, I guess is what I'm asking for. So what is the liberation meant? What did it mean? I mean, was there a clear idea as to what everybody was fighting for? Well, on the Black American side, uh, the idea was that you're supporting Palestinian nationhood and that you feel that a wrong was exacted when Palestinians were routed in 1947-1948 and dispossessed that rang loudly on this side of the Atlantic where, once again, you have a settler state, which is something that's rarely acknowledged in, in this country, but I think instinctively. Uh, amongst Black Americans, there was a sympathy for this underdog. However, I should also mention the contradictions, the, the points of conflict. I, I recall myself at a rally 
for Palestinian rights in Houston, Texas, just a few years ago. And I thought I was making rather antiseptic, anodyne comments of solidarity, which I used to make for the anti-apartheid movement all along. That is to say, your struggle is our struggle. We have commonalities. We're similar, blah, blah, blah. And the, many of the Palestinians took a took a objection and an exception. And there was a long line that, that, that formed to rebuke me and reprimand me, which I was really shocked and taken aback by. But, it, but in retrospect, I think that there, there was a sort of contradiction, uh, not only with regard to perhaps them not wanting to be put in the same bag with a group like Black Americans, a minority uh, struggling against racism and exploitation, but also uh, we have to deal with the unique, peculiar racial politics in the United States where Palestinians are oftentimes constructed as, quote, white, unquote, which means that they don't have a certain kind of accent or perhaps, or even Christian, uh, they can enjoy privileges that Black Americans don't enjoy. And so uh, I'm hoping that with this present crisis, uh, these sorts of issues can be worked out because th that's not the way to build solidarity. Well, what was it that you said, for example, that they that people found objectionable? Well, that we're similar. Speaking in the, when I used to speak in the anti-apartheid movement, you, that was part of the rhetoric. Now, of course, there were differences between Black South Africans who were a majority in their country and Black Americans, a minority. But the, diplomatically and tactfully, the Black South Africans didn't point out, wait a minute, we're not, we're not like you, <laughs> for example. I, I, I was really taken aback by these rather antiseptic comments uh, being rebuked uh, when you know, it's like you extend the hand of solidarity and it's slapped aside, <laughs> for example. Yeah. But again, I want to push on my I, I want to push on this issue again, my, my initial question. And maybe I'm not phrasing it right. I'm, I'm, I'm holding back from I was holding back from saying one state or two state or what kind of liberation or what does liberation look like? What did liberate what did people envision when they talked about Palestinian liberation? What was it going to look like? Was it going to look like a a a, a democratic state with equal rights, which is what the Palestinians were demanding going back for decades? Was it some kind of a separation or was it whatever the Palestinians wanted? I mean, what was the conversation? There must have been a conversation that was more detailed than just, you know, solidarity. Well, I, uh, you know, as diplomats and tacticians, it's not up to Black Americans to instruct Palestinians. No, no, not to instruct, but I mean, was there a conversation? Yeah, my point is, is that that's, that's their choice. It's just like in South Africa, that's their choice. And then we support in solidarity their choice. It's now was it clear what, what they were talking, what they were asking for? Was it ever really cl made clear? What the Palestinians were or the South Africans? No, so the Palestinians. Well, I mean, for people who are following the news, as you know, for the longest, there was the idea of a two state solution. And only, uh, I would say, in the last few years, has there been an eruption of talk about a binational state or one state solution. But but once again, that's that's up to the Palestinians and their leadership to determine and to decide. Now, as And that's the position, I would say, of progressive, influential Black American opinion. That is to say, that's their choice. When they opt for their choice in a majority decision, that's what we support. Okay, so there was never, so even pre-67, there was no specific conversation about, or even anything that came from the Palestinians that you know of, 
that was directing the solidarity in in, in, a, in a particular political way, one way or another. Because in pre-67, nobody talked about two states, really. Um, but I don't know what kind of conversations were going on between the leadership of the very progressive, actually, groups within the Black community and the Palestinians. So you don't, there's no information about what that looked like. Is there? Or is there? Well, I would say that there has been a struggle. I mean, on the one hand, to return to what I said at the top, uh, there was a lot of pro-Israel sentiment uh, in the Black community. And there still is, for, for that matter. And as a result, that influenced even those who considered themselves to be pro-Palestinians. Pro-Palestinian, for example, it would make uh, the pro-Palestinian forces uh, shrink with regard to uh, saying what the remedy should be, or for that matter, even broaching that question uh, in solidarity with uh, Palestinian comrades. And why is that the case? Why is there why was there support, and why is there still support and widespread support, if I'm not mistaken, within the Black American community for the state of Israel? Is it religious? Is it political? What What is it? I would say it, there are many streams. One, there's a historic stream from the left, going back to Du Bois, Robeson, 1947-1948. Secondly, there's New York centrism. Uh, to the There is a substantial uh, New York City influence in shaping Black American public opinion. And many of the Black leaders in New York, because of the substantial Zionist influence and substantial Jewish American community, even today, you, you see that there's a split in the Black community. The, the New York leadership, speaker-in-waiting Hakeem Jeffries, Mayor Eric Adams, Reverend Al Sharpton, uh, they're all pro-Israel. Whereas you, you get out of New York and you go to Western Pennsylvania with Congresswoman uh, Summer Lee, Indiana, uh, Congressman Andre Carson, who happens to be a Muslim, Congresswoman Cori Bush of St. Louis, uh, they're the ones calling for a ceasefire. And so I've argued that to a certain extent, to which uh, when the newspapers refer to a certain kind of uh, so-called Black Jewish conflict, which then shapes opinion with regard to Israel, it's, it's really in many ways just a New York conflict that because of the media headquartered in New York is blown up into a national question. But there's there's also there's also the black churches and I always felt that if if that part of black america was able to if if there was a possibility to get that part of black america to support the palestinian cause uh whether because they see similarities or whether because it's just the right thing to do then that would be a a, a game changer. And I know, and I think it's not a secret that the Zionists have invested and the Zionist lobby has invested a great deal in the black churches. Is there a way to to break through that? I mean, if you were to if you were to embark on a campaign, say, you know, theoretically speaking, and you wanted to really break through into that more traditional, you know, church going community, um, how would you approach it? I mean, is there a way to do that? Well, uh Part of the, the question is, is bad education. Yes. That is to say that many in these black churches, they're not aware of what's happening to the Christian communities in Bethlehem, for example. Uh, it, it, it's really abysmal ignorance, in my opinion. But having said that, if I were trying to, to 
break out of that, uh, I would say, person-to-person -person contact between Palestinian Christians and Black American Christians, because as I've already indicated, most of the contact has been on the political level. It's been, uh, for example, to the extent that there's pro-Palestinian con uh, constituencies in Black America, it's mostly been from the left. Right. So if you're trying to break into the religious community, obviously you're going to have to approach that on, on the basis of religion with yeah. persons to contact. I'll tell you, uh, you know, a little anecdote. I was in Atlanta years ago and I spoke, I forget what college I was on, and I spoke in the morning and in the evening I was going to be in one of the churches. And after the, the morning session was over, one of the, you know, one of the audience said to me, so you're telling me that you're going to go to a black church tonight and you're going to tell them that the people of Israel are not the Israelites and that the land of Israel does not belong to them? You know, well, how do you even expect anybody would be able to hear what you have to say? And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that that still has, you know, that that's that's still the case, that breaking through that, the religious aspect of that, of this very strong faith that the Israelites, people that the Israelis today are the old Israelites, that the Holy Land is the Holy Land and all of that, is a challenge. And um, is, is this true? I mean, is is what, what do you think of that? Well, as I said, I think it's a, it's a result of abysmal ignorance. I mean, for example, uh, my own opinion is that with regard to approaching burning political matters of the day, they should be approached from the point of view of history, from the point of view of economics, not necessarily from the point of view of dusty religious tomes. And I'm afraid to say that the way... Christian clerics are trained in this country, not least Black American Christian clerics. They're not necessarily trained in politics and history and economics. They're trained with regard to holy books. Right. And they transmit that to their parishioners. And that's part of the problem in terms of dealing with a sticky political question like the Palestinian cause. You know, when when you're in Palestine, whether you're on the Israeli side or the you know, regardless, you, you see you see these delegations, delegations of churches, uh, of of Black American churches, and they go to the all holy places, and um, and the way these tours are conducted, and the way the whole that actually the whole conversation is conducted, is as though <clears throat> the stories in the Bible represent history, and now. They're in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and so on, and now they're walking in the footsteps of these figures. And of course, for for the most part, there's no historical, there's no archaeological or, or historical, you know, uh, you know, proof that any of these figures existed. Is there a way to break through that? It just takes education. I mean, I, I wrote an entire book about the 16th century where I posited that you cannot begin to understand the United States of America without understanding religious conflict. First of all, the conflict between um, Catholics and Protestants that forms the backdrop for the colonial settlement in North America, and then the Protestants being under siege by the Catholics who have greater numbers, and so they make a historic compromise with the Jewish community. Recall that London had expelled this Jewish community at the end of the 13th century, but by the 16th century, it was under the gun from Catholic Spain and then began to welcome the Jewish community, the Jewish community from a pragmatic point of view, that's then transmitted to this settler colony here in North America, which, as I've tried to point out, in many ways, the 
evolution of the United States actually contradicts Zionism because uh, it's, it's paradoxical that as Theodore Herzl was developing his uh, Zionist uh, nostrums at the end of the 19th century, uh, Jewish Americans were in the process of ascending to the highest level of this society, which is one of the political questions we have to grapple with today as they put pressure on those of us who are calling for a ceasefire. I mean, that's one of the paradoxes of, of this whole crisis. Uh, that is to say, supposedly you need this uh, Jewish state because anti-Jewish fervor cannot be eradicated. Uh, that notion being promulgated by people in the United States of America and this so-called superpower, oftentimes at the apex of society. I mean, it, it's paradoxical to put it mildly. Right, right, right. right. So what, what is the title of that book you just, you just mentioned? Uh, I think it'd be great to have the title. The Dawning of the Apocalypse. Okay, that's a, that's a title that's hard to, hard to forget. Um, so, so again, so I'll ask, I'll ask the question again. So having, so understanding what you understand <clears throat> about this issue, about this, you know, this, this contradiction you just described and also about the importance of religion, in 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 basically in almost any conversation, um, is there a way to separate, you know, between the faith and history on this issue, or is it are they bound forever? I mean, how do you? Because I I did that when I was in Atlanta, and then I had meetings, <clears throat> excuse me, with some leaders, individual kind of in smaller groups, and you know they all they're all very polite, and very kind, and and you know applauded, but at the end of the day. I didn't make any headway whatsoever. The, the 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 religious fervor, the strong belief that, or the strong connection between the Book of Faith and history. I was not able, certainly not in that one particular visit, to to you know break through and say, okay, well the faith is great and this is what we believe, but history shows us other things and perhaps that's legitimate too, and we need to be able to live and exist knowing both. Is that even possible in your opinion? Well, there, there's another point that I think is hovering in the background, which I will not articulate, which is that many people are comforted by this idea of religion in this context, because when they veer towards something that is considered to be controversial, like supporting Palestinian rights, uh, the Zionist lobby, the Israeli lobby comes down on them with a ton of bricks. And then we get to this construction of whiteness, uh, which in many ways is grounded in anti-blackness. And I find, I have found that just like I was pointing out this contradiction between black Americans, the Palestinian community on, on this nub issue of whiteness, we have the same question in the Jewish community. And I, I, I found that within the Zionist lobby, they have no compunction about coming down on Black Americans. As a matter of fact, it seems like they, they like to accuse Black Americans of being anti-Jewish, uh, like the actor in Hollywood who is now uh, under fire, because in some ways, I think it connects them to the roots of the settler project in the United States. It sort of reifies the, their hollow the position in the halls of whiteness, for example. So I understand why Black American Christians, whether they admit it or not, are very reluctant to speak out on this question uh, because uh, the examples are legion of people paying a stiff and heavy price for doing so. 
And this is even though the, the you know, I think the absurdity of this, the the anti the anti uh, anti semitism um, accusation is is completely absurd because how could you possibly accuse anyone and 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 certainly the Black American community of being racist when all they're doing is demonstrating support and solidarity with other oppressed people. What exactly is anti-Semitic about calling for the freedom of people? How could that even be anti-Semitic? And I mean, I, I don't hear people calling out the absurdity of this claim, the absurdity of these accusations. Welcome to the United States of America. <laughs> I mean, this is a nation that's built upon creation myths, built upon absurdities. And, and by the way, I would be remiss if I did uh, did not mention uh, another irony, which uh, I'm very hopeful, and I salute all of those who've taken to the streets in support of a ceasefire, in support of uh, anti-genocidal measures in Gaza. But uh, I find it somewhat ironic, and I think historians will do so as well, historians of the future, that many people don't seem to realize that they live in a settler state. And that one of the differences is, is that the settlers here were quite, quote, successful, unquote, in dispossessing, liquidating, eliminating the presence of the indigenous population to a substantial degree, out of sight, out of mind. And so whether these demonstrators or protesters realize it or not, in some ways, what they're trying to do is prevent historic Palestine from evolving like the United States of America, this country to which many uh, pledge allegiance. Yeah. We only have maybe a minute left. Um, and so before we run out of time, I, I would have, I really thank you for your time. And and, and this is this conversation should, you know, uh, go, go on for much longer than this. But um, clearly the, 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 the support for the Palestinian cause has not taken on in any meaningful, significant way within the Black American community. Would you recommend, I mean, what would you say, I mean, you said education. Um, is there anything else that you think would be would be helpful in, in moving this along? Well, delegations. Uh, I would like to see delegations from the uh, Palestinian side uh, coming to various conventions, coming to the Congressional Black Caucus weekend, which takes place in September of every year, perhaps coming to the NAACP convention, if that would be allowed, because they're very nervous you know, <laughs> about uh, seeming too forthright. But hopefully, with the international glare of publicity, that will change. Coming to the convention of the Con Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, for example, there, there, there are many uh, organizations within the Black community that meet on a regular basis. It would be very useful if Palestinians would get a hold of that calendar and make sure they're represented. And, and likewise, uh, as I think you've said, uh, you oftentimes find Black American delegations in Israel, for yeah. example. And uh, I think that it would be useful if the Palestinians would serve as a kind of door opener for Black American delegations to the region uh, to visit the allies of the Palestinians. For example, in, in Algiers, where we can build upon 
a pre-existing history, which I've said with regard to the Black Panther Party, and points uh, headed eastward, which I don't have to detail on this program. So more, more exchanges, more person-to-person -person contact, more delegations, uh, more exchanges in terms of newspapers. Then you know there are scores of Black American newspapers. Uh, oftentimes they're looking for copy. They're desperate for copy. In fact. Mm -hmm. uh, Palestinians could easily place their reportage in these Black American newspapers. There are all sorts of Black American podcasts. For example, it would not be that difficult to place guests from the Palestinian side uh, into these Black American podcasts. I mean, the, the opportunities are limitless and endless. Well, I will follow up with you on, 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 on those and, and, and create a list which I think would be really useful because everything you just said, I think is, is fantastic and it's great information. And it's, like I said, it's, it's news to me. It's news to, um, I think a lot of people. So I really, really appreciate that. Um, again, Dr. Gerald Horn, I really appreciate your time. Your, your, your knowledge is, is, uh, is profound. And um, I look forward to seeing you once again when you're back in DC. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. So I can sign off, I take it. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, bye-bye. Be sure to send me a link once it's up. Oh, of course, of course, absolutely, yes. All right, good luck, bye-bye. Thank you so much, bye-bye. Mm -hmm.